Welcome to CrossCut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of CrossCut Now on KCTS 9 and a host for this podcast. Today for this episode, we're talking about the metaverse, or rather trying to decipher what it actually is and what is its future. Carnegie Mellon University professor Jesse Schnell and Webb Bush Securities Managing Director Michael Pachter delved into the complex world with writer and moderator Stephen Kent in May at the CrossCut Ideas Festival in Seattle. Everyone has their own definition of the metaverse, as Schnell and Pachter do. Schnell defines the metaverse as virtual, spatial, and social, whereas Pachter says it's a persistent world that crosses virtual, real, and augmented worlds. If you're confused already, that's okay. During this talk, the panelists' dueling perspectives highlight where the industry is and how the public views the metaverse. The experts share their view of where society is technologically and how much further they believe the industry needs to evolve to truly see the metaverse reach its full potential. The undeniable thing here is the metaverse's potential for societal impact, both the pros and the cons. Schnell and Pachter argue that the technology will be able to bring us closer together while simultaneously pulling us further apart. I hope you enjoy this interesting conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Stephen Kent. By way of introduction, I am not an expert on all things metaverse, but I have been covering high tech and high tech entertainment and high tech society for 30 years now. My guests, however, definitely qualify as experts on the subject. I am joined today by uh, two panelists, Dr. Jesse Schell, a distinguished professor at Carnegie Mellon and the founder of Shell Games, which is a pioneering company in the VR game space. I'm also joined by Michael Pachter, a managing editor at Wedbush Securities and absolutely one of the most quoted men in high tech. Welcome, Jesse and Michael. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Same. Thank you, Stephen. Why don't we start by defining the term metaverse? Uh, what is the metaverse? Jesse, let's start with you. Oof, uh, well, different people mean different things. Uh, I guess the way I always look at it is I find when people are talking about metaverse, they're talking about things that are virtual, spatial, and social. So the, from, to my point of view, any online world where you are connecting up with other people in a spatial location constitutes you are now somehow in the metaverse, whether that be Roblox or Fortnite or something else. Okay. Michael? I, I have a more expansive view and it might be easier to tell you what it's not. Um, it's not Roblox and it's not Facebook. So um, I think that the concept really means that it's a, a persistent world that crosses virtual and real um, and augmented reality. So real world, virtual world, uh, augmented reality, Pokemon Go is augmented reality. Um, and I think that the concept of the metaverse is that you and 
any intellectual property associated with you, um, any actual property associated with you can traverse the metaverse, can go from real world to virtual world to augmented world, and your stuff comes with you. And so I think the, the analogy would be if you own a pair of Nike shoes, sneakers, you can walk into a Puma store and Puma's not going to kick you out because they might hope you'll convert to buy Puma sneakers. Uh, but if you decide that you want to you know, take something into Facebook, they'll boot you right out or Roblox. They'll put a wall up. So the metaverse is going to let you own things, create things, use things, whether they're virtual or real, any place that you happen to be. And, you know, I think that the best description that I've heard is Web 3.0. It is another way of building the internet that crosses over from 2D, two-dimensional and three-dimensional virtual worlds and into the the real world. So um, again, I, everything Jesse said is accurate. I just have a, a broader view of what it's going to evolve into. Okay, well, not be an instigator here, but I'm gonna, since there was a little bit of a conflict, I'm gonna ask, uh, I'll start with you again, Dr. Shell. You included Roblox and Facebook as part of the metaverse. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess I don't I, I guess the, the main the main issue I take with the idea of the metaverse is that uh, I think it's the wrong way to think about the way people are going to interact. Um, I think the right way to think of it, in my opinion, is many different metaverses because um, these are often going to involve virtual worlds of some kind and virtual worlds are all about boundaries. Um, if I get a bunch of equipment in World of Warcraft uh, to bring it over into the Pokemon world doesn't help the World of Warcraft world and it doesn't help the Pokemon world. It, it kind of breaks both of them. So instead we have boundaries between these worlds. And so um, I know some people have their ideal is no, there are no boundaries. Everything I get everywhere, I can use everywhere. Um, but uh, in my, you know, in in I certainly in my the in my experience so far, that is, I think neither practical nor desirable in most cases because boundaries are what make worlds interesting. So the way I look at it is, we're we're likely to have many different um, metaverses. Okay. Uh Michael? And, and uh, let me draw a definitional distinction because again, every single thing Jesse said, I agree with and he's right. Um, I think that using the words worlds and metaverses interchangeably is probably not gonna be where we end up in 10 years or 20 years. Worlds, yes, 100%. I think there's one metaverse, just like there's one internet. And when I look at Amazon, who's a sponsor of this session, so thank you very much. Amazon is not the internet. They are the leading retail e-commerce site on the internet and the leading cloud provider on the internet, um, one of the big advertisers on the internet, but they are not the internet. And Roblox is not the metaverse. They are a leading game platform in the metaverse. So I completely agree with Jesse 
just like we can't go, you know, play uh, cosplay LARP, you know, events in a library because the library doesn't want us to disrupt, you know, what other people are doing, or we can't make a phone call during the movie in a, in a movie theater because there are rules. You have to respect the, you know, the wishes of others. Um, I agree. We're not going to wear our Nikes into, into World of Warcraft. That doesn't make sense. But I just use those as examples of the idea that I think the, the most important thing that has to be portable, and I think this will cross all worlds, is the wallet. And right now, if you try to buy something in a game, and I'll use games because it's pretty evolved. Um, if you play three different games made by King, you know, Candy Crush, Candy Crush Soda, and Candy Crush Jelly, all on your iPhone, you have three different accounts for the currency that you purchase. The dumbest thing I've ever seen. And it's, you know, the, the reason why, Apple decided. I, I asked King years ago why they wouldn't have a portable wallet across their games. Apple decided. The metaverse will get rid of that. There will be a single wallet. And that wallet is probably going to be loaded up with real currency. It could be crypto. It could be anything. But you're going to be able to buy something any place you want from that wallet, which is good. It's less waste. It's more efficient. It will encourage people to try new things. So uh, as Jesse said, and I'm 100% on board with this, the metaverse will consist of an infinite number of worlds, but it won't be one world. That one world is not going to be Facebook slash Meta. It's not going to be Roblox. The, the model is going to be some pioneer, whether it's Unity or Epic or somebody we've never heard of, is going to come up with a platform that is open, that has a pyramid of brands and professional creators at the top and everybody who uses it at the bottom. And everybody's going to be able to contribute to this universe, this metaverse, by creating content, and everybody's going to be able to, to monetize. So I think it's like defining music and saying music only consists of recorded artists, you know, who have made albums. That's just not true. Music consists of us singing in the shower as well. Nobody would pay us, but we're able to do it. And we now have that bridge between amateur and professional shows like American Idol or platforms like TikTok that where people can demonstrate how talented they are. And then if, if they're able to convince enough people to buy their music, they sell it. I think the metaverse is that. So, so as we see music evolve to TikTok videos and American Idol, we're going to see the internet allow people to create content. And if it's good, we should be able to buy it. And if we're able to buy it, that's the beginnings of the metaverse. So the, with that in mind, I'll start with you, Michael, on this one. Where would you say we are on the evolutionary scale right now for the metaverse? We need a lot of failures so that people can figure out what not to do. Um, we need a handful of successes through innovation. Um, you know, I think in fairness, we're about, we are to the metaverse in 2023 where we were to the internet in 1995. And so had you asked me in 1995, who's going to win the internet? I would have said AOL for sure, the dominant email, you know, network, 
I would have said Microsoft, the dominant operating system. And I would have said Dell, the dominant computer maker. And, you know, Dell to some extent, I suppose, has succeeded. Microsoft absolutely succeeded. And AOL as an afterthought doesn't exist anymore. But had you asked me to describe gaming in 1995, multiplayer gaming, I would never have conceded a Fortnite where a person on their phone could play with a person on a PC and another person on a console. That's crazy to me. And yet we can do that. So we're tech is a barrier and participation is a barrier to the evolution of the metaverse. Um, even when Facebook and MySpace before that and Twitter after that had launched, I had never conceived of Snapchat. Like who came up with that? But it's brilliant. And even when we had things like YouTube videos, if you had described TikTok to me, I would have said, oh, what a ripoff. But it's better. I don't know why, but it, but it works. Um, so I think that the metaverse will be done growing when another generation of creators is, is born and matures. I'd say we have another 20 years before it's fully formed. And I'd say we have about five to 10 before it really starts to take shape. So we're in the very, very early innings. Um, and I think fortunately for future generations of creators, you've got guys like Facebook literally pissing away billions and billions of dollars chasing their dream of the walled garden that's going to fail and people will learn from that. And fortunately, you've got visionaries like Tim Sweeney at Epic who want to take on the world and make this as open a platform as possible um, and allow people to create to their heart's content. So, you know, I think that when Tim Sweeney ultimately wins, the metaverse will actually be formally born. Okay. Dr. Shell, where do you see us on the evolutionary scale? Uh, it's interesting because there are so many different things happening in parallel. Um, on, on one level, I think we have a number of things that haven't evolved much lately, right? The internet itself has changed very little in the last 30 years. Um, the, so the, the question is, where are the changes going to uh, come from? And um, so, uh, okay, the reason it's hard to talk about it is there's multiple things happening in parallel. We're going to see uh, huge advances, certainly in terms of our interaction with AI and AI characters as part of gaming worlds and also non-gaming worlds. We're going to see big advances in terms of our ability to interact spatially. The, 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 we're going to use mixed reality in ways that we don't fully understand yet. We're going to find ourselves up against this um, uh, privacy crisis um, because what makes mixed reality work is having uh, cameras all over everything, all the time, scanning in the interior of your house and every place that you go. And we're going to have this whole question of like, what, what of that are we ready to share into the cloud and what aren't we ready to share? So um, one of the things that I 
know is true is that with these things, games always lead the way because if, when games, uh, games can afford to take crazy risks and only sort of work. Whereas like normal applications, like they have to work. If I'm, if I'm, I can have autonomous cars in a video game and it's fine because they crash a lot, but having them in the real world is problematic. And so, um, the, the whole, uh, I guess what I, I guess what I'm getting to is watch where games are going and then we will see the rest of culture start to follow that. And so this is partly why I think Roblox and Fortnite are very important in this regard. Because on one level, Fortnite's just a game. People are just playing a game. But on another level, it's this cultural force where concerts that thousands and thousands of people are showing up for are happening within the context of this video game world that was never designed to be a concert venue. So, um, and when you and when you look at sort of the spirit of Roblox, it's kind of against the way that most adults think of video games. But the kids who are playing Roblox now are going to demand that things start to work more like that, that they are able to create content within their own worlds. So I, I think that we, we have some interesting steps that we've taken, but in terms of um, deeper, more social connections and spatial connections, we have a long way to go. Okay. Just for readers and, or for listeners, in case they're not familiar with the terms, when we say virtual reality, that's where you're pulled into a reality that doesn't exist. It's, a, the, the, it's manufactured around you. Augmented reality, as Michael pointed out, like Pokemon Go puts a virtual thing on the screen in the, reali in the reality, in real reality around you. And mixed reality takes your world and then overlays a different reality on top of that. Can we agree on those terms or is that correct? Yeah, that sounds right. Yes. Okay, just want to make sure. Next question. There's a lot of discussion about the adverse effects of technology on society. People who can only communicate online or via texting, isolation, those kinds of things. How do you, um, starting with you, Dr. Shell, how do you see the metaverse impacting society? Oh, it's a great question. And Stephen, I should mention, I'm not technically a doctor. I'm a professor, but not a doctor. So I, okay. I just, I, I keep meaning to mention that. Um, in terms of how it impacts society is, is going to be a really great question because in some ways, these technologies are going to make us more antisocial because we will spend more time interacting with virtual constructs and virtual versions of ourselves. Um, and, but at the same time, there are opportunities for it to make us more social. Um, some of the, we're doing a lot of work with mixed reality right now where we're seeing that the, the, the killer app for it, for the ability, when, when you have the ability to to, to put on a pair of glasses and overlay uh, geometry into your real world. The strong, one of the strongest ways to do that is to open up a wall of your house and have it lead into um, the, a room of another person you know, and to have these sort of more intimate connections. 
to be able to have your friend virtually be sitting on your couch and have a chat with them as if they're in the room with you. So in, in some ways, these technologies will, will do what social media has done, which is push us farther apart from each other to, to create these identities that aren't our real identities and make people feel weird about themselves because they think other people are better than them. But at the same time, we can use some of these technologies to connect to each other in closer, more intimate ways. And, and I honestly think this is the whole history of tel all telecommunications technologies is that they bring us closer together and farther apart at the same time. And it becomes a question of using them wisely and using them well. Okay. I... Michael? I, I mean, Jesse's concerns about privacy are really well taken because um, that, I think, is the only impediment to the metaverse really massively enhancing uh, interaction among people. Um, game, leading with games, I think, is also the right thing. Um, if you roll back about 25 years ago, there were almost no multiplayer games. I mean, they, were, they existed, but hardly anybody could figure out how to connect to one another. And now all the big games on the planet are massively multiplayer, whether it's Fortnite or, or Call of Duty. Um, and I'd say that's really good for society. You may be stuck in your, you know, in your basement playing Call of Duty, but you are talking to people. And, you know, as long as it's not uh, harassing people, I mean, I have friends that I know through games that I've never met. We're sitting here in three corners of the U.S. right now, and we're communicating as if we're in the same room. And that's awesome. So, you know, technology allows that. Um, I think that the impediment to this happening to the two impediments are protocols. So, so uniform standards so that everybody who's building their vision of this, it'll work with everybody else. That's, that's the way to really accelerate adoption. Um, and that's why I said, Facebook can't win. Facebook wants you to log into Facebook in order to access the metaverse. You have to be able to go to any screen and log on. Um, and then privacy slash safety. You know, and, and those are kind of the same thing. Um, we can't feel threatened by going into this space. It has to be safe and we have to feel that we'll be respected. And that, again, kind of rolls back to protocols and standards that you, know, you have to make it, as Jesse said earlier. So when I go into Warcraft, I'm not bringing an AK-47. You know, I can't do that. Um, so it's got to be safe for the to, for the integrity of the game. It has to be safe for the players. Um, if I choose to be anonymous, I should be allowed to be anonymous. So I, it should be private. Um, but I think this is a really giant leap forward for people to be able to communicate. And I think, again, Jesse's analogy to the early telecom, calling your mom and saying goodnight when you live in a different city. You know, we've all done that. And the metaverse is going to allow us to see our mom every night and say goodnight. So it's it's a, a really welcome uh, advancement in tech, and I think that people are going to embrace it. Okay. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone, like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you 
I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. Michael, I've got you first. How dependent are virtual reality and the metaverse on each other? You know, on each other's success. Well, virtual reality is hard, um, and Jesse far more expert in that than I. But um, it's hard because virtual reality is a chicken and egg concept, where the virtual reality headset, you know, is the chicken and and uh, the the software, the, the things that you use it for are the eggs. And you just can't get chickens without eggs and you can't get anybody to make eggs without chicken. So it, it, it's hard to develop software for a limited market. Um, and the hardware so far is still too expensive for most people. I think Oculus is, they just raised price back, but it was down to 300, it's back up to something close to 400. PlayStation VR is 500 and we need a PlayStation. So another 500, it's a thousand dollars to even think about it. Um, and, you know, so with a thousand dollar entry, who's making PSVR games? You know, you, you can't assume there will be more than a couple million players. So VR is really a, co a complicated concept. Um, we know for the last eight years or 10 years of Oculus that um, the software that's leading has been games and I expect that that will continue, but um, nobody's come up with a way to give away the hardware for free. Um, I think that virtual reality is never going to be big unless a killer app like healthcare adopts it or like education adopts it. And so again, I'm not advocating that this should happen, but if we had the government look at virtual reality the way they look at electric cars, you know, something that's good for the environment, so we'll provide a subsidy so you can pay less for your Tesla, then virtual reality would take off. And the way to do that is to, in, you know, incorporate it into education or healthcare. Um, that'll happen eventually, you know, I think, but I, I think VR is gonna be a real tough sell as long as you have to spend 300 bucks minimum to get into the market. And again, that Oculus headset, pretty much you need a internet connection of PC. So you're limiting your audience to pretty wealthy people. Okay. Uh, just for the for our viewers, just so you know, Jesse Shell, his company Shell Game has actually had a couple of several VR bestsellers. So uh, what's your opinion on this? I mean, I, I, I think I have a more optimistic view of uh, virtual reality and where it stands right now. I do agree that pricing is critical. And um, I, I do part of what's happened with Meta's Quest 2 product is they really seem to have found the, uh, you know, the the right formula um, by pricing a headset about the same as a game console and having it have a lot of high quality content uh, is clearly the successful path. There's there's somewhere near 20 million uh, Quest 2 headsets out there right now, which is more than there are Xboxes out at the moment. Um, so um, in terms of uh, as, a, as a gaming platform, I think um, we're already there. We're already there in terms of having a solid community of people who are excited about playing this way. Now, the thing I think is important is this is a kind of play that isn't for everybody. 
it's it's um it's 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 a little too immersive and too intense for uh for some people it's just it's fine which is it's so i don't i know i don't look at vr and say oh this is going to absolutely replace what we have in the uh you know it, it, i don't think it's going to replace traditional gaming but i do think it's going to take a a a big seat at the at the table um and just like the relationship between you know movies and television you know movies are bigger and grander um and you know television is sort of smaller and cheaper i i think we're going to have some of that similar relationship but the part that confounds all of it is what's going to happen with mixed reality because the next generation of headsets we're going to see you know meta's got the quest 3 coming out and uh apple's going to be making some announcements before too long and all all of the rumors are that these are all going to be both virtual reality and mixed reality headsets at the same time and exactly how people start to use that um is is going to be very it's going to be very interesting to see um this all reminds me a great deal of the early days of uh home computers you know there was a lot of talk of like well well people really want computers in their home they're too high priced we're never going to get there you know the apple II came out and it was and it was like yeah this is pretty cool but it costs a thousand dollars and no one's going to want to do this because the software is just not good enough and then a couple of years later the commodore 64 comes out which is pretty much the same thing but it was priced lower and they sold something like 30 million units um so so i think i really is a lot about uh price we have the prices are coming down the features are going up and uh we'll see what happens that well but michael brings up a really good point and i want to follow up with you on this meta at a time when when consoles would typically drop their price by a hundred dollars meta did go up by a hundred and then took a real hit in sales with the oculus 2 did they not they yeah they've been doing some, they've been doing some unexpected things with pricing where they uh they brought their price up and then they brought their price down i i'm not exactly sure but the, you know they're they're they seem to be fussing around with um with the with the with the price point in you know in uh in minor ways but um it, you know in, in the end i guess the the thing i look at is the thing that appears to be true is people haven't uh the game console market has shown us that people are willing to spend around you know four to five hundred dollars for a high-end gaming experience that they really like and yeah. they, so they seem to be exploring in there and and of course it's not always four to five hundred look at the nintendo switch which likes to be in the two to three hundred right so uh i think we're going to see i think the formula for headsets is going to be a price point between 200 and 600 dollars um that involves a, a an experience that involves no tethering um that 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 formula that's i think is going to be the long-term model that we're we're going to see be successful in the in the vr space and it it's uh it's possible now and it can continue to be possible and it's part of what i find fascinating is it drafts off of the mobile market the mobile market for weird reasons people are willing to spend 800 to 1200 dollars on phones they don't think they're doing that but they are because there's chicanery that the that the phone companies do and so as a result, like phones are really high end hardware. 
the same hardware from a previous generation is what goes into the headsets, but because it doesn't have to be compressed, it can be spread out and overclocked because then it doesn't overheat. Anyway, it's a lot of, a lot of nonsense, but um, the fact, as long as phones keep on the path that they are, headsets will be able to follow on that same path. But I would say even, um, I'll put out there that even 10 years from now, uh, $200 to $600 headset with no wires is going to be what constitutes normal in the VR and mixed reality market. Okay. Uh, just before I go, that sound yeah. about right price point to you as well, Michael? Um, the, the price point's fine. I, I, I'm glad Jesse brought up phones because um, phones are different and I, I will explain that. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm the odd person who actually buys phones and, and uh, I got 400 for my iPhone 11 and traded in on a 13 and cost me 450. So every two years, roughly. So I'm spending $225 a year for a phone. So let's call that a dollar a day. I spend seven hours a day on my phone. And uh, Apple reminds me of that. So what a value. That's just incredible. That's why we do it because we actually access everything there. We shop on our phone. We read the news on our phone. We tweet on our phone. We take pictures with our phone. Um, but I think Jesse's a hundred percent right. If VR can figure out a cell phone type model where they come up with a, a piece of hardware that we all feel is essential and we have to have it, then you will go from 20 million headsets to 5 billion headsets. And that's what the phone has done, not, not by design. You know, phones were invented a long, long, long time ago. I've had a cell phone since 1990, but um, people determined that they had to have them, that they were essential. And the reason cell phones have worked so well is they were the only way to access the internet in lesser developed countries. In Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, you know, everybody who accesses the internet does so on a phone and fewer people do it, you know, based on a, in their home. Um, so if you look at gaming and that's a perfect example, there are maybe 250 million console gamers on the planet and our households. Um, there are three and a half billion mobile phone gamers on the planet. So you get the massive adoption if you can get the hardware into people's hands. And I'm most interested in mixed reality because there might be an in-between. There might be a hybrid. If anybody can ever figure out how to do VR at well on a phone, then instantly you have 5 billion people in that addressable market who can access it. And again, I think that's going to happen. I, and if anybody can figure out how to do um, VR on any screen, your PC or your TV or your phone, oh my God, are they going to win? So I don't know when that's going to happen. I was a cynic about 3D television. I will be a cynic about TVs for virtual reality, but I can't even conceive of somebody you know who, who has yet been born who's going to come up with something that I don't even know exists. That guy is that guy or woman is going to be born and they are going to figure something out that we haven't figured out yet. And they might be, that might be in our audience right now and figure it out. So I, anyway, I completely agree with Jesse. If you get to the right price point where you get widespread adoption, this is absolutely going to work and it's going to work fast. Okay. Well, I have to insist if they're in our audience now and they get an idea from listening to us, we do deserve a commission, but, other go. than that, um, we'll get a audience engagement from enjoying what they create. How's that? Well, fair enough. Um, we are taking questions from the audience as well. And we actually have 
quite a few in already. So I, I thought I might stop my questions and ask you a few questions from the audience. Uh, Gary B asks, how is it, how is what you guys are saying different from what Zuckerberg said about the, the said the metaverse would be? Uh, Michael, I'm going to start with you on this one because you're more likely to be different from Mark Zuckerberg a little bit. Yeah, two, two, two words, walled garden. So Mark Zuckerberg is fine if the, if the metaverse exists within the confines of Facebook and the way you access it is to join Facebook and go to the Facebook app and log in and use your Facebook wallet and do whatever activities are built in Facebook. So I would say that Facebook meta is to the metaverse what Disneyland is to eating. Yes, there are restaurants there, but who goes to Disneyland to eat out? It, you know, they have them. And what they do is they feed the people who are captive inside Disneyland who have paid the toll charge to get in. So Facebook thinks that that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to their theme park, their metaverse theme park, and eat at their restaurants. And he is just absolutely bonkers wrong. Okay. Jesse, I'm guessing you're not going to completely agree with that one. No, I, it's it's hard for me to look at things like the success of the App Store or the Android Store, which are both just giant walled gardens. Um, you could argue that, of course, an open solution will defeat both of those, but um, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, the problem with open solutions is they generally suffer from the tragedy of the commons, whereas, um, you know, uh, Places where a per somebody, who, whoever owns the place is making a profit tend to be the places that, that stay. Um, I think it's a beautiful dream of having a completely open, um, completely open systems like that. But in practice, I find they tend to be the exception and not the rule. Okay. Uh, just following up on this for both of you guys. Um, the, the visions of the metaverse that people are going to be most familiar with right now are probably the visions from Snow Crash and especially Ready Player One. Accurate, Dr. Uh, Jesse? I think people often think that way, and I, and I think that's generally... Um, I, I look at those things as, as kind of confused and, and, and wrong because... The, but with both Snow Crash and Ready Player One, what they, the, the visions that they bring are that, that the way we're going to want to interact virtually is going to be a mirror of the way we interact with the real world. Um, and that the closer it is to a real world physical interaction, the better it is. But the truth is that's just not, that's not how anything works. We don't want to have distance in uh in virtual worlds we want to be able to go to where we want to go to when we want to go there and the other thing that's confusing when you look at the worlds of snow crash and the worlds of ready player one is they are a blend of functional worlds and entertainment worlds and functional entertainment worlds are really different because in functional worlds i just if like if this is the i don't know i'm doing my taxes I don't want to like travel into the tax kingdom and take a long walk. No, I want to get in, get my hit the buttons, get my paper, my numbers done, get out. I want it to be, I want to eliminate as much reality from possible and just get as, as simple, get it, get it done. When I'm doing entertainment and fantasy things, then I want to create spaces and places. And those two things 
they're not really going to blend. They never, they, they historically they haven't, and I and I don't think we're going to see that um, going forward. So I expect a real, I I expect the functional worlds and the entertainment worlds to largely be um, very different from each other. Okay, Michael. I I can't say it any better than Jesse just did, and I I would say that Ready Player One and Snow Crash are part of what the metaverse is going to evolve into, just like movies and broadcast television are part of filmed entertainment. But we've expanded that to include YouTube and TikTok videos and selfie videos. So it, it, it there's more. There's just a lot more. I think Jesse described the the more very well. I, I can't really add anything to that. It's he's it's part of what's going to happen, but not the only thing that's going to happen. Uh, Terry asks, it seems like Facebook is backing off priority uh, being the metaverse. Uh, is that him, I believe he means Zuckerberg, giving up on on it? And what should we take away from that? Jesse, I'm going to start with you on that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't say exactly where, uh, I, I, I don't know if I have a clear answer on that. Um, it, it, I think it's been absolutely fascinating Zuckerberg's choice to take a company that was basically about textual and textual social media and then to decide to be the 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 greatest virtual reality innovator in the world. That was, was an incredibly bold choice because it, it, it is such a it's it's quite a leap from kind of one experience to another. They um uh so far all everything that we have seen in terms of our interactions with meta are a deep commitment to innovation in the virtual reality space um how long can you know it's that's uh, how long can they continue to lead in that space i think we're going to find out but so far they seem strongly committed and uh we'll see how the next couple of years go if if they have a if they have a few down years where they, you know, the the quest three and whatever's beyond it can't get uh, any traction, it, it, you you'd have to think that a pivot is necessary. But if they continue to be the market leaders that no one else is is touching, um, it it may it may be this is uh, people may look back and say, wow, this was a really smart, bold, long term strategy. We'll have to see. Michael, what do you think? I agree that they win virtual reality. Um, I think that they've got the investment. I think they have the tech. Um, I think they have the drive, the desire, the leadership. So they will win. I, I don't see anybody passing them in VR. Um, I don't think they win the metaverse. I think that, you know, just as we just described, VR is part of it. It's not all of it. Um, they'll participate for sure. And, and their hardware will participate and their software will participate. Um, but they can't limit access to the metaverse to Facebook members. They just can't do that. And it, to me, it's like McDonald's becoming the only restaurant on the planet because they, they serve more burgers. You know, they serve more meals than any other restaurant. That's not good enough. And they're, they're really good at what they do, inexpensive food, you know, served fast and high quality. Facebook's really good at what they do. And they will continue to be really good at what they do. But the metaverse is so much more than Facebook that I don't think that company is equipped to adapt and grow into what our vision of, of what this is going to ultimately be ends up becoming. So we'll see. I, I mean, 
Uh, I've been skeptical about companies transforming before. I was skeptical that Netflix could go from renting DVDs to streaming video, and they seem to have done pretty well doing that. So who knows? I'm going to chime in with one thing very quickly. I, I think there's a misinterpretation, not by either of you gentlemen, obviously, about the mission of VR labs. I, you know, we look at VR labs and we think, okay, they do virtual reality. We don't realize they're also working on augmented reality, mixed reality, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. The, the, the scope of what they're doing is much broader than what people think. Right. And whether or not they're able to incorporate that all together is only the future will tell. But it's it's not like Mark Zuckerberg said, okay, I'm putting all of my every last chip on this one color on this one bet. Um, and I, and it's it's a shame that people don't see the broadness of what he's trying to accomplish. Just wanted to throw that in there. Um, Cassandra asks, do you think the metaverse is something the uh, the public wants or the public want? An interesting punctuation there. Uh, beyond game, beyond gamers. Michael, let's start with you on that one. Uh, the metaverse is something that, as Steve Jobs famously said when he came up with this buttonless phone, um, we're going to build it and we're going to explain to them why they want it. You're not building the metaverse because people want it. You're building something people are going to use. And as they use it, they're going to love it. And I honestly, I remember my parents, who are both gone now, um, fearing the Internet. They were afraid to actually even log on to a website because they thought somebody would be watching them. You know, we've got to overcome the fears and, and the metaverse. It, everybody will find something in the metaverse that they find beneficial that improves their life. So people want it. They just don't know it yet. Okay. Jesse, you get to finish us up with this answer. Okay. So I think the thing that people want there's a thing that people want that they don't realize could ever be possible in their lifetimes. And when they realize it's possible, they are going to embrace it fully. And that is the ability to overlap our personal spaces. Um, for you to be able to have close friends and family members who live far away sit at the same yeah. dining room table with you and eat together every night it sounds impossible. It doesn't sound like it could be done, but it is going to be um, possible easily within the next five years for, for people to be, to be creating the illusion that we are in the same space, that I'm in your house and you're in my house when really we're just in each other's houses and the technology is, is uh, creating the illusion and overlapping that together. And um, so um, the most powerful things for people are always things that bring us closer together. And that is, that is what the power and the promise of, uh, of this technology is, is going to be. Okay, guys, you've been a dream panel. We are officially out of time, but I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, glad to be here. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Jesse and Michael for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. 
And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.